Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to say a special thank you um, to each of you for making our time here enjoyable. Uh, we've really enjoyed it. The only regret I've had is I would love to interact more with you um, in the everyday things of life on the volleyball court, cleaning up, mopping. Um, I enjoy working alongside young people. And I just want to bless you and your work and ministry here. Um, in my experience, when I was at Faith Mission, um, I have no regrets for the, the time that I was there and the things God taught me. Um, it's, it's a special time. Make the most of it. Um, give it your all. Enjoy it while you can. Time moves on. You will reflect back on these days, I trust, with a grateful heart. <clears throat> and I just want to affirm what Brother Howard gave to us. Thank you, Howard, for listening to the Lord. We will never regret responding or listening to him. God bless you for that. <clears throat> okay, for the children, who was the five-year-old boy that became lame because his nurse dropped him? You said it correctly. Very good, Asher. Mephibosheth. Yes. We would consider him a victim, right? His nurse was trying to save his life, and in the process, she dropped him. Mephibosheth is an incredible example of unselfishness. He was in David's house, and when David fled from Jerusalem during Absalom's revolt, when he came back, um, prior to him fleeing, he had given a vineyard to Mephibosheth. And another man came in and took that vineyard, and David gave it to him, because he thought Mephibosheth had turned against him, only to discover Mephibosheth could not go along with David because someone took the donkeys or the camels, his ride. He was lame on both feet. And Mephibosheth said, let the man have the vineyards. I really don't care about them. As long as I can sit at David's table, I'm satisfied with that. So Mephibosheth is in a tremendous example of humility. And thank you, children, for the good job you did on your homework. Well done. Turning our thoughts and hearts to the message this evening, we'd like to look at the picture or subject of the altar. And for those of you who received a paper, I would like to hear some words from you. Um, when you hear the word altar, what are some words that come to your mind that describe an altar? Anyone? Sacrifice. Thank you. Mediation. Mediation. Very good. Worship. Worship. Surrender. Surrender. Redemption. 
Redemption and lament. lament. Okay, thank you. These are excellent. Any others? <clears throat> praise. praise? Thank you. Yes, praise. The sacrifice of praise. Do you think also of words of like death, committal? How about fire? Anyone think of the word fire? Thank you for your response. You're absolutely correct. An altar contains an element of everything that you mentioned. And in particular tonight, we would like to look at the fire on the altar. And we would like to look at the altar. I don't know if, am I kind of in your way here to see the altar? Um, maybe this is actually. <clears throat> That's my attempt at an altar. But I want us to think of our hearts as an altar and the fire as God's spirit, the fire of God's spirit. And it's God's heart that there is fire on the altar. God doesn't want just an altar. He wants fire on the altar. And as you look throughout the Old Testament, we see many altars and we can see flickering flames on occasion, right? Men of God spake as the word of the Lord came to them. We see little flames of fire. And sometimes we only see smoke. But God came to rekindle the fire. How did he plan to do that? Turn with me please to Matthew chapter 3. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, John the Baptist speaking, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And tonight I want us to think in a synonymous kind of way, Fire and Spirit, same thing. Fire representing the Spirit. We read of Pentecost. Remember, they were all together in one accord. And what fell upon them? Cloven tongues of fire, right? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happened, a mighty movement began. It was like the batteries were activated, so to speak. <laughs> and God moved miraculously and with power in people's lives. So I would like for us to capture God's heart for rekindling the fire within our hearts. He wants us to be filled with his spirit. So tonight we're going to look at three altars in Scripture, and 
gather a nugget from each one, a particular nugget from each one. So the first one is Genesis chapter 4. The first 12 verses, I will simply relate the story to you. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And you remember that Cain's offering was not accepted. And Abel's was. And this angered Cain. And God actually came to Cain and offered him a redemptive way. He said, if you do well, you will be accepted. And there's a longing within the human heart deep down for acceptance, right? And we try to find that acceptance in many other ways. But I want you to know that even if you're given the acceptance you think would satisfy from those around you, it's never enough. You will only find true satisfaction in being accepted in the Beloved by Christ. Then you can actually receive the acceptance, acceptance of others without it being a sponge that's never filled. So the, the lesson I want us to learn, that Cain had to learn, or should have learned, Cain wanted God to meet him on his terms. And when that didn't happen, the easiest thing for Cain to do was to remove his brother Abel, who he thought was the problem. How about if we just take away the altar that's accepted, then mine's the only one left to be accepted, right? Right? No, it doesn't work that way. So here is the primary principle I want you to gather from this altar. Wherever there's relational strain, check the altar. There is an inseparable principle that my relationship with God affects my relationship with others. And my relationship with others affects my relationship with God. Whenever there's strain relationally, check the altar. Cain was given an op opportunity to fix something that he was a part of the problem. Instead, he tried to fix the relational issue by removing his brother who was righteous. A concerned husband went to his doctor one day and said, I think my wife is losing her hearing. Whenever I tell her something, she asked me to repeat it several times. And so he said, well, why don't you go home and get about 15 feet away from her and ask her something. And if she doesn't respond, move closer, five feet, ask again, and we'll get an idea of how severe her hearing loss is. So the husband went home, stood in the doorway, and his wife was chopping up some vegetables for um, supper. And he said, honey, what's for supper? No response. He moves five feet closer. Honey, what's for supper? No response. He moves closer and asks the same thing. Still no response. Finally, fed up, even though he didn't have supper, he goes right up behind her about an inch away and says, Honey, what's for supper? And she said, 
for the fourth time, vegetable stew. <laughs> you see, we often perceive the problem to be someone else. When really, we may be part of the problem. Second altar, Genesis chapter 22. This is the account of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac was a promised son given to him by God. This was not just any son. This was a miracle child. And Abraham was asked to give up the son, notice the words, whom thou lovest. God asks us sometimes to sacrifice or to give up what we love. And he doesn't do that to be mean or um, just to be cruel to us. There's a purification of that love for what we love that happens. Really, God was testing him to see, do you love me more or the son I gave you more? If you're there in your Bibles, I will join you in Genesis chapter 22. I want to look just at a couple verses. The end of what happened here. Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac. I can't imagine the, the turmoil that could have been in his heart. I don't know if he even told his wife. But they left and he was planning to go through with this. He was willing to give up the thing that he loved. Now, before I read these last few verses here, I want us to think of a word sacrilege. Have any of you heard that word? Sacrilege? Um, typically, it means taking something that belongs to God and using it profanely. But in its worst form, it consists of taking something that means nothing to you and offering it to God. In other words, am I giving the best of what God has given to me back to Him? Worship at its core is giving to God all of all that is your best. And even though God has given it to you, unless it's sanctified, unless that gift or ability or talent is purified and sanctified, it cannot be useful in His kingdom, however great your talent may be. God wants to purify that. Do I commit sacrilege? Or do I just... Give God the leftovers and keep the best. I want us to notice the last few verses here. Um, 17 and 18. Look at the blessing that Abraham received because of obedience to God in offering his son. 
Sometimes we think when we give something up like that, we're going to lose everything. What we fail to realize is that we have so much more to gain. God's heart is for us, not against us. God says, Because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Because Abraham was willing to give up the very thing that he loved, God gave that back to him in a purified, sanctified way that blessed nations through that act. That could not have happened if Abraham was not willing to give God his best, the very thing he loved. Moses and Paul, two of the finest minds in the Old Testament, pardon me, the New Testament, Old and New Testament, were called to bring those abilities to God's service, even as Abraham and Job, in their wealth, were called upon to recognize their spiritual poverty at the altar of God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Let's read verses 24 through 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's something within us that is fearful about letting go. About really letting go and letting God have it all. Even the best. Why are we scared to let it go? Everything that we commit to God is safe. And everything that we do not commit to Him is not safe. Whoever defends himself will have himself for his defense and will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord and he will have for his defense no less than God himself. God's name is Jehovah Jireh in this altar story. The Lord will see and the Lord will provide. You can trust him with it. He's the one who's given it to you in the first place. Give it back to him so that he can bless and sanctify and use that 
for his honor and glory. What did Jesus ask of the rich young ruler? What did Jesus tell him? Remember what he told him? Sell that you have. Go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. Yes. Okay. If you're like me, I usually focus on what Jesus told him to give up. Go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. But what else did Jesus tell him? <laughs> Amen. You see, we're so prone to look at what we have to give up and fail to look at what we can gain. And this is a marvel to me. I don't understand this. How God can give you and I something physical as money that we can actually invest in such a way that makes treasure in heaven. <laughs> um, how do you rate that exchange of currency? <laughs> Temporal for eternal. That's, that's hard for me to comprehend. And yet that's the blessing that God wants to bestow upon us if we are willing to give him our all. God wanted him to have treasure in heaven. It would be a little bit like um, me asking Asher, um, can I have your $1 bill that he got for his birthday? And that to him is all the money in the world that he has, okay? <laughs> and I would offer him $100 if he would give that to me. Now, Asher could go around and say, Daniel gave asked me to give up my dollar. And he could, he could say, that wasn't nice of Daniel to do. <laughs> or he could go around and say, Daniel offered me $100 if I gave him my one. <laughs> you see what the focus does. Don't just look at what we have to give up. Look at what God wants to bestow upon us. So much more. Treasure in heaven, the third altar. This is a tremendous showdown between God versus Baal. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 39. You know the story. Let's walk through it briefly. The prophets of Baal erected an altar. Elijah gave them first opportunity. Whichever God answers by fire... Let him be God. And it was an agreed upon um, venture. The altar was built. They laid the wood in order. They laid their um, beast upon it. And then they tried all day long to get Baal to send fire. And I want you to, I want you to capture the effort, the intensity the zeal, the activity that these men gave to this altar. They shouted. They were zealous. Toward the end of their time frame, they became so zealous, they were jumping on the altar. It was actually dismantling it. They were tearing it down in their zeal to get this thing fired up. 
They were the ones fired up, not the altar. They were even cutting themselves with knives and the blood was running out. That's how hard they tried. But look at the wasted energy. Look at the vain worship. Look at the self-inflicted harm. And look at the disrespect to the altar in what they did. They wanted a good thing, right? They wanted fire to come. But they were looking at the wrong source. God, through Elijah, when his time came, took 12 stones. And I love the order of what Elijah did. He took 12 stones and made an altar. Do you know why there were 12 stones? Anyone? Yes, one for each tribe. Then he dug a ditch around that altar. And remember, it hadn't rained for years. And then he got them to take three, no, four barrels of water and dump it how many times? They did it, yes, three. They did it once, he said, do it again. They did it twice. He said, do it again. What's four times three? Twelve. Do you see the order that's happening here? Twelve stones. Twelve baptized or cleansed stones. Prepared stones. He laid the wood in order. He had the um, bullock on it properly. And then it was as though... Elijah was simply to align the altar properly so that the fire of God could fall. And before he even could ask for the fire, it fell and consumed everything on that altar. The wood, the stones, the altar, the bullock. And it was at the time of the evening sacrifice. God wants to pour out His Spirit upon us in such a way that we are totally consumed. How does that look? Elijah, Elijah, I believe, is a type of Christ. Think of the showdown on Mount Carmel, just like the showdown on Mount... Why isn't it coming? Where Christ was crucified. Thank you, Calvary. Between God and Satan, that's where the real battle was. He was taken up into heaven just like Christ in a whirlwind. Elisha comes on the scene as a type of the spirit of Christ. And if you look at what Elisha did, so many things represent the spirit in his life. You remember he healed water with salt. He made empty vessels full. He raised a dead son. He taught 
the sons of the prophet. He told the words of the king in his bedchamber. We think we have some secretive communications here sometimes. <laughs> this was before smartphones or hidden cameras and all that kind of stuff. He told Naaman through his servant, wash and be clean. This is incredible to me. Elijah had incredible, miraculous power in his life. And do you know what Elisha asked for? Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I, this is, this, may I say, blows my mind. To have a double portion of Elijah's spirit, let me just give you a little glimpse of what Scripture says, what that power looked like. After Elisha had died and was buried, there was a group of men who were burying a young man. And before they could finish burying him, here came the enemy upon them. And they didn't have time to finish this burial, so they just chunked him into Elisha's grave. And do you know what happened when that young man hit Elisha's dead bones? <laughs> he was alive. He came back to life. Read it for yourself. Phenomenal story. My question to you is, would you like to have the spirit of Elijah? How about, would you like to have the spirit of Elisha, a double portion? Did you know it's possible to be filled with God's spirit? The spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead can dwell in you and I. And that's far beyond the double portion. That's available for your altar and my altar. How does that look? It's not enough just to have a good looking altar. A church member went and visited his neighbor one day. And as he went to leave, he put his suit coat on. And his neighbor said, you know what? There's no religion in that coat. And the church member said, you're right. But now there is. There was a young man driving down the road and he happened to look across the field and he saw this man pumping water and the, the unusual thing was this man, excuse me, man was pumping vigorously and tirelessly. He kept at it and didn't stop. And this young man said, how in the world can he keep going like that? So he stopped and drove in to find out what was going on, because this was supernatural. Like, you just can't keep going at that rate forever. <laughs> and this fellow was pumping away. He drives up 
and takes a closer look. And what he discovered was this was an artesian well that it wasn't a real man. It was a fake man. But the, the wooden man was hooked up to the artesian well. And he was not pumping the well. The well was pumping him. <laughs> and that's the difference. If you would go to Colonial Williamsburg and watch the blacksmith put a piece of iron in the fire, you will, if you wait long enough, not only will the iron be in the fire, but the fire will be in the iron. And that's what God wants of you and I, to be consumed by his spirit. Do you remember Moses at the burning bush? He turned aside to see this great sight. Why? Because there was a fire burning, but this bush was not consumed. In other words, the fire was not coming from the bush, but the fire was in the bush. And when that happens in our life, People want to turn aside to see this great sight. How can he live like that? Where is that fire coming from? And it testifies of God. I would like to give um, two illustrations of applications to the altar here in closing. And this one... Um, too often represents me. So we're going to call this little fella Daniel, okay? And you may recognize him as we go along. Can y'all see that over there? Are you familiar with the story, an elephant? Six blind men and the elephant? I want you to follow this little character named Daniel. I want you to watch his motions his expressions as we go through this story. Six blind men of Indostan, and each did want to know, what is this thing called elephant? To find one, they did go. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. Oh, bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. Now we have his response. You notice his cane is down now. He's taking it in. He said, it's like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, it's very clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. He's still taking it in, but he's repeating what he's heard. He said, it's like a spear. The third came near the animal and, happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, he soon began to quake. I see, squeaked he, the elephant is very like a snake. 
He said, it's like a snake. The fourth reached out with his eager hand and felt about the knee. What this stupendous beast is like is mighty plain, piped he. It's clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. And this is Daniel's perspective now. Notice he's trying to make a point. I said it's like a tree. The fifth, who gently touched the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny it if you can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. Notice the size of letters here. Notice not only does Daniel want to make a point, but now he's starting to raise Cain. I said... It's like a tree. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than grabbing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, spoke he, the elephant is very like a rope. Daniel start raising Cain, he gets all up in the air about this. I said it's like a tree. And so the men of Indostan argued loud and long. Though each was partly in the right, they all were in the wrong. That's where this story tends to end with the men squabbling. And I didn't like that ending. I like this one better. No, let me finish this story here. Oh, here we go. Daniel has settled down, but now he's rooted. I said, it's like a tree. What Daniel means by that is, it doesn't matter what you say, I said, it's like a tree. That's not changing. <laughs> The next part of the poem, think of the spirit coming into their midst and bringing understanding to them. Then came a man into their midst with open eyes to see. Six blind men who saw only part of what the whole should be. Said he to them, sit down while I explain. Each part contributes to the whole. And thus he made it plain. Said six blind men of Indostan, Tis strange that this could be. Apart from each, we all were blind. But together, now we see. The greatest testimony and the heart of God exemplified is in your working in unity together. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples 
if you have love one to another. And that means that Daniel has to see a picture bigger than himself and lay that down. I was having meeting at, meetings at Faith Mission, and on Saturday they had wood splitting for the men. They had widows in their community, and they were splitting wood for the widows. I happened to be working with one of the men who had a big outdoor furnace, and he could chunk big logs into that furnace, but he and I were breaking these things down pretty small so that the widows could handle them. And he looked at me and said, these things are toothpicks. And I got the point. But in reflection of that, I began to see, God showed me something I hadn't seen as clearly before. Who had the greater need? The man who could throw in big chunks of wood or the widow who could only manage small pieces. The widow, right? But here's how it looks in Daniel's life often. I want to be like Nebuchadnezzar, this large tree that people can take refuge in, take shade in, be refreshed by, be sheltered by. And what happens? Here comes the woodcutter and drops this tree. And I say, Lord, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't even right. Now I can't be for you what I want to be. What's going on? And if that weren't enough, here he comes again. And he cuts right across the grain and chunks me into pieces. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, what in the world's going on? My, my dreams of what I wanted to do for you, what I wanted to be, are shattered. And if that weren't enough, here comes the 27-ton wood splitter. And he takes those chunks and puts me under it and breaks me into small pieces. And then he asked me, Daniel, are you willing to be small enough to be a service to a widow? You were too big before. I want to give you comfort as you consider the altar and what God asks of us, God says, a smoking flax will I not quench. Maybe the fire on your altar is, is just smoldering or smoking. God wants to fan that. He wants to blow on that. He wants that to erupt into a flame. A smoking flax will I not quench. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, When thou passest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. 
Fire burns only dross. May that be a comfort to you. Silver is purified by fire. And what is burnt off is what is not of value. And what is of value emerges in a pure, much more enhanced, valued way. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And if we want fire on our altar, there's one thing that always precedes the fire. don't know if you can see that or not, but the cross always precedes the fire. God gives you and I a testing place, an altar, and when he brings us to that point, there are no dozen possible choices, just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. We can choose to experience God's purifying fire now, or we can choose to experience an eternity of hellfire. So as we consider the altar tonight, I want you to think about three specific things. Is there relational strain? Check the altar. Have you given God your best? Or maybe something is out of order and you're trying to produce that fire like the prophets of Baal. And you've wearied yourself. You've wanted the power. You want the, um, the infilling of the Spirit. But you've been trying to pump the well. And the well hasn't been pumping you. We can't produce it. We need the fire of God to fall on us. And all he's simply asking of us is to properly place things in order on the altar. So I would like, like to give you an opportunity, if there's relational strain, if you're frustrated with lack of power or victory in your life, if you simply want to recommit your all to God, God, I want to give you my best. You've given it to me in the first place. Thine for service, Lord. If you just want to, in a fresh way, commit yourself to him. And open yourself so that his fire can fall upon you and motivate you. I want to give you opportunity to respond to that. I think I'll ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's sing um, just a couple verses of Nearer Still Nearer.